0: Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, you you are the one we need to hear from. You are the true teacher. So would you uh, strike a straight blow with a crooked stick, and would you speak tonight through your word? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start tonight by reading uh, just two verses for you. Uh, The first is from uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And the second is from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We shall be like Him. Well, as as promised, I wanted to tell you uh, how I met my wife, and this is uh, pertinent to the subject at hand. Um. Let me start with this. The second time I spoke to my wife on the telephone before we had ever been on a date, the second time we spoke on the telephone, I told her that I wanted to marry her. Uh, that's not dating advice, guys. That's, uh, <laughs> I'm not recommending that, but let tell you how that, how that happened. Um, and I remember what she said. She was, there was silence on the other end, and uh, I said, what are you thinking? And she said... I think I'm going to throw up, That's what she said. She said, that is rash and intemperate. So she, and I felt like, I, you know, she was Elizabeth Bennett and I was Mr. Darcy, like, oh, this is wonderful. Uh, guys, if you don't know that reference, read that book. Um, well, why, why did I think that? Because here's what I knew about Morgan. I knew that uh, she had spent the last three years in Sierra Leone, Africa, working for an NGO, a medical NGO in Sierra Leone. And I asked her how she got to Sierra Leone, and she said, well, I was living in New York. My wife's New York City, born and raised. Um, She said, I was living in New York after college, and the United Nations put out their livability index of all the nations in the world, And at number 206 on the list, that's the bottom, 206 out of 206 was Sierra Leone. It's the least livable nation on the planet. And I I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life, but I thought, you know, if Christians don't go to Sierra Leone to help, who's going to go to Sierra Leone? So I did some research and I found a way to, to go to Sierra Leone. And... You know, you can sort of make do in Sierra Leone, I suppose, for a few weeks. But for three years, you can't really fake being in Sierra Leone for three years. I'm convinced that's how I got my wife to marry me because I could promise her electricity and running water on demand because she didn't have that for three years in Sierra Leone. And uh, so I knew I knew she was a woman of great character. Anyone who says, that's why I went to Sierra Leone, because I love Jesus and I love people. I knew she was a woman of great character who loved Jesus. Uh, I knew we could have a conversation, because this was, I said, our second conversation. Uh, (laughs) Nietzsche said, marriage is a lifelong conversation. And that's as good a description of marriage as you'll ever hear. It's a lifelong conversation. Uh, and I knew that I was attracted to her, and m- perhaps she was mildly attracted to me. Um, but that's really all it took. I knew she was a woman of great character. I knew she loved Jesus. I knew we could talk. And you know, I was at the point of my life where I was like, "What else really? What else really matters?" And we've only been married seven years, so it's not like I'm about to write a book. But uh, I'll tell you this, a little bit of uh, dating advice. Prize character above all else. It's the only thing that gets more beautiful with age. Uh, when, I, when I was in college or even in my 20s, if someone had told me that, I, I think I would have said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I've come to see the wisdom of that. So seek to become a person of character. That that doesn't mean um, that you have to be a person of character to get married. You know, look around. Um, Oscar Wilde once said, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. And I like to think that's why my wife married me, uh, because she knew I had a future. So... What does that have to do with the topic at hand? Well, what drew me to Morgan was I knew Jesus Christ was her compass north. I knew she didn't need me. Uh, I knew she was not impressed with me or by me, that Jesus Christ was her compass north. And when I saw that, I I said to myself, I've got to do everything I can to convince this woman to marry me, including humiliate myself. Um... So for the next several months, I sort of followed her around the country. She was, she was on furlough before she was going back to Sierra Leone. And she goes, I don't know why you're pursuing me, because in two months, I'm going back to Sierra Leone for a year. And I was thinking to myself, okay, I've got two months, two months. Uh, and over those next eight weeks, we saw each other six times, and, uh, and here we are. So Christ was her, her, her compass true north. Do you know what your true north compass is? I'm reading a, a lot of books right now on on what is college for. You might wonder, well, why, why are you reading books on what college is for? Well, I'm about to give a commencement address at one of these high-powered LA high schools. You know what I'm talking about, where the, the school costs like $35,000 a year, I think, it's the tuition. You know, this is one of these high-powered L.A. high schools, and I'm giving the commencement address, and I sort of think, you know, what What am I going to talk about to these kids? And so I, I, I read a few books. The, the first is, uh, was, is by a guy named Andrew Delbanco, who teaches at Columbia University, uh, called uh, College, What It Is, What It Was, What It Should Be. And here's what Professor D'Omako says about college. He says, you want the inside of your head to be an interesting place to spend the rest of your life. I love that. He says, that's the purpose of college. You want the inside of your head to be an interesting place to spend the rest of your life. The next book is called Education's End, and it's a pun on the the phrase, education end, by Anthony Cronman, Dean of Students at Yale. And he is decrying that colleges have lost their purpose to aid students in the question, what makes life worth living? And he says that college students today and and their parents with them have become absurdly practical. And I love that phrase, absurdly practical. The third book, my favorite of the bunch, is by a guy named William Derisowitz. And his book is entitled, Excellent Sheep. Excellent Sheep. And the, and the title of the book uh, says it all. Uh, uh was a professor at Yale he, and head of the admissions committee. He recently resigned because he was so concerned about what he saw in his students, that they were smart and driven, he says, but anxious and lost. Unable to think critically about life, and unable to articulate a sense of purpose. Quote, conformist without a compass. Conformist without a compass. So the the common denominator of of these three books, these three writers, is that colleges have abandoned their purpose to help students find meaning in life. And maybe your college is an exception to that. But colleges have abandoned their purpose to help students find meaning in life and to seek out what makes life worth living. And all three of these writers, incidentally, none of these writers are Christians. They're all, they're all coming from a secular perspective, but they're arguing this is what college is for, to teach you, to help you think critically about what makes life worth living. I'd like to submit to you tonight that the driving issue of our day behind all the polarity and all the arguments and all the fights and all the fear, the driving issue of our day is not economics, politics, or sexuality. The driving issue of our day is what makes for a fully human life. I'd like to submit that is the question we are all asking as a culture. What makes for human flourishing? And for my money, one of, the most, one of the reasons this is one of the most exciting times to be alive is for the first time since the early church, there is a whole cafeteria of competing answers out there about what makes life worth living, what makes, what makes life flourish. There's a whole cafeteria of competing answers. And Christianity is just is one of the options. And you get to choose. What makes a human life flourish? One of my favorite quotes is from the 17th century mathematician and scientist, Blaise Pascal. If you don't know much about Blaise Pascal, let me just tell you a little bit. Blaise Pascal uh, was a genius. By the time he was nine years old, he had figured out in his head all the theorems of Euclid before he had ever heard of Euclid. That's the father of geometry. I mean, this was a smart kid. Uh, He invented the vacuum cleaner. He invented the calculator. If you're a mathematician, you know some of his theorems are are still used today. But in his late uh, 20s, uh, Pascal died at 39. Uh, In his late 20s, something happened to him. He became a Christian. He had a dramatic encounter with God. And he wanted to devote the rest of his life to convincing his his skeptical contemporaries. His best friend was Montaigne, the essayist. He wanted to convince his skeptical contemporaries of the reasonableness of the Christian faith. And so he started writing down his his thoughts. And for you French majors out there, you know the the French word for thought is is pensée. And that's the title of his book. Um, because when he died, these thoughts were, were uncollected. They were just written down. It's just his thoughts. But here's my favorite pensee from Pascal. Here it is. He says, Order. Men despise religion. He's writing in the 17th century, by the way. Men despise religion, they hate it and are afraid it may be true. The cure for this is to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true, and then show them that it is. Make good men wish it were true, and then show them that it is. Worthy of reverence because it truly understands human nature, and attractive because it promises true good. For Pascal, Christianity is worthy of reverence because it helps us understand ourselves. And it is attractive because it offers compelling answers to our human questions. That is my great burden for you tonight, to convince you that Christianity is compelling because it offers the most compelling, attractive answers to our human questions. These are not Christian questions. These are human questions. And tonight's question is, where am I headed? Or what on earth are you here for? Or what is your horizon? As we said last night, like any road trip, you have to know your destination. You have to know where you're headed. Glorification is the theme of our week. And last night I gave you my thesis that nothing shapes your present more than the future hope on which your heart is set. And last night we talked about ambition. What is your glory? But tonight, what is your horizon? What is your end in view? Or in terms of these books I referenced earlier, why did you even go to college in the first place? What is your horizon? The novelist Walker Percy once said, there are two types of people in the world. Those who see life as a quest and those who don't. He continues, such a view of man as a seeker, as a pilgrim, is nothing else than a recipe for the best novel writing from Dante to Dostoevsky. He's saying these are questions that we all face at at transition points in our life. We ask, Where am I going? In times of boredom, we ask, What am I doing with my life? In times of suffering, we say, What is all this for? And when these questions arise, if you don't have a compelling horizon, you feel aimless, you feel adrift. But if you do, as Nietzsche once said, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And maybe that's why we love those underdog sports movies. You know what I'm talking about. Hoosiers, Rudy, Rocky. What do they all have in common? Some horizon propels the characters through hardship and exhaustion toward a worthy end. And any sacrifice is worth it if they can reach the goal. If we can just get there, any sacrifice is worth it. As Rocky says, I just want to go the distance. But if you mean to go the distance, as with any trip, you have to know where you're headed. You have to know your destiny. Do you know that the gospel gives you a very specific destiny? It's very much at odds with the modern, secular, western mindset. See, the modern, secular, western mindset says your destiny is up to you to craft, create, or forge. Choose your own destiny. And that is only a recipe for depression where you've failed or anxiety where you've succeeded because you've got to keep it up. Nor is your destiny inescapably assigned to you by blind fate like Luke Skywalker. Like, Luke, this is your destiny. Something toward which you move inescapably. Nor is your destiny simply to get married or have a family or get a great job, as good as those things might be. Your destiny is grander than that. Nor is your destiny neither some vague sense of going to heaven someday, being reunited with all those you have loved and lost, sweet as that prospect might be. But perhaps explains why heaven seems quite boring to little children. What does one do all day? See, when you become a Christian, Christ unites his life to yours. You are not your own, the Bible says. That is the life of faith. Faith is finding your identity in Christ. If you are in Christ, the Bible very rarely uses the word Christian only two or three times. But almost 170 times it uses the phrase, in Christ. If you are in Christ, the gospel tells you that you have a destiny very surprising and very specific to you. One that gives a new shape and purpose to each day. You have a horizon that can propel you through any, that can propel you through any hardship and exhaustion toward a worthy end. And any sacrifice is worth it. Any sacrifice is worth it if you know your horizon, if you know your destiny, if you know where you're headed, if you know your glorification. So, tonight, before we look where we're headed, let's go back, as Bob Dylan once sang, to a garden where we were born. You have to know where you came from to know where you're going. This is Genesis 1, very familiar words. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You are image of God. Everyone in this room, everyone you walk on the beach, pass by on the beach is image of God. What does it mean to say that we are created in the image of God? Well, you may know from much of history, scholars have talked about the image of God mainly in metaphysical terms. That is, uh, we image God in our ability to reason or to create or in our conscience or in our desire for community. But the question is, what did image of God mean for the original biblical writers and its original context? When they used the phrase image of God, what did they mean? In his groundbreaking book, The Liberating Image, the scholar Richard Middleton argues that in the ancient Near East, the term image of God was widely used, but it was reserved for only one person. See, in Egypt and Mesopotamia, there was only one image of God, and that was the king. Moreover, the Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rod points out that in that day and time, powerful earthly kings, to indicate their dominion, would erect a statue of themselves, an image of themselves in the provinces of their empire where they did not personally appear. So in the ancient world, when a slave heard the phrase image of God, that's what came to mind. The king and his emblem spread throughout his empire. The king and his emblem spread throughout it. That's what image of God meant. So when the author of Genesis 1 says, not of the king and not of one man, but of all men And women. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's a profoundly subversive revolutionary text. Before Genesis, only the king was the image of God. But now Genesis says to all men and women, every one of you is created to be royalty, walking emblems of the king spread throughout his empire. And not only royalty, in that culture the king was not, was not only the sole representative for God, he was for that reason the sole mediator between God and the people. He was the priest. So Genesis 1 is saying not only are you royalty, you are a priest... You are created to have access to God. You are a royal priest. We don't often put those words together today, royalty and priest, but this explains to you why this strange language you'll find repeated throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. First Peter 2 9 says, You are a royal priesthood. And calling us image of God. Middleton concludes, This must be acknowledged, Genesis 1, is one of the most daring acts of theological imagination within the whole Bible. It crystallizes the central Israelite insight about being human in a term typically applied only to kings and priests, and thereby profoundly affected the theological imagination of generations of biblical readers. If you want to know where we got the idea... All men were created equal. The seeds of it are right there in Genesis 1. You were created to be royalty. You were created to be a priest. This has such explanatory power, doesn't it, to explain why each one of us has a yearning to be significant. Each one of us has a yearning for someone to say over us, you are so special. That isn't trite sentimentality. It reaches down to the roots of what we were made for. And yet, and yet we know something is amiss. See, we were created to be royalty. We were created to be priests. We were created to have access to God. And yet we know something is amiss. Some of you know the name Carl Rogers. He's one of the most famous counselors of the last 100 years. Carl Rogers said... After 40 years of counseling tens of thousands of men and women, he concluded the central core difficulty of the great majority of people is that they despise themselves and regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. Oh, I just love that quote. It's just such a great leveler. I think of that quote all the time. The central core difficulty of most people in the great majority of cases is that they despise themselves. I hope that fills you you with such great compassion. Michelangelo, the great artist, the only sculpture he ever signed was his Pieta. It's a statue of Mary holding her crucified son. Installed in the St... St. Peter's Basilica in Rome in 1500. The Pieta had remained there, mostly undisturbed, until 1972 when a vandal broke past security and smashed it repeatedly with a hammer. The attack resulted in severe damage to the nose, veil, and left eye of Mary as well as shattering her left arm. This treasure of Renaissance art became a marred masterpiece in need of restoration. Over the next year, it was painstakingly repaired by taking a block of marble from its unseen back to restore the Pieta to its original image. Now that is the story of what has happened to you and me. As with the Pieta, an enemy has entered into our world and savagely attacked human beings, leaving us damaged and marred. The image of God in each one of us has not been completely destroyed, but it has been marred. It has been defaced. And not only by threats from outside of us, there is also an enemy within, as you heard just a few moments ago. Sin is an unpopular word today. In Los Angeles, it's associated with rule breaking and forbidden pleasure. It's one of the reasons Christianity is unattractive because it's seen as life denying and glum. And I have to tell you, that was my impression in college and why I wanted to have really nothing to do with Christianity. Then I happened to come across another masterpiece of medieval art the Divine Comedy by the Italian poet Dante. This is one of the undoubted classics of world literature. And deep into Dante's long poem, there was a couplet that caught my eye. And it's not going to sound like much when I recite it to you, but it changed my life. And here is the couplet. Love is the seed in you of every virtue and of all acts deserving punishment. Love is the seed in you of every virtue and of all acts deserving punishment. Oh, I remember reading that and just putting the book down. Dante is saying, everything we do, the good things we do, the good things we do or the bad things we do, we do for love. Love is the seed in you of every virtue and of all acts deserving punishment. Everything you do, you do for love. It is not, it's not what we know that defines us, it's what we love. We are creatures of desire, and it's simply a question of where that desire is directed. And it was Dante... It was Dante who first showed me that sin was not breaking the rules as much as misdirected love. And that was very compelling to me as a college senior. For Dante, sin, and for Dante, we're all sinners, sin is loving the wrong things, or to be more precise, loving the right things in the wrong way. Now, here was a definition of sin that was old, but thoroughly modern and thoroughly biblical. Sin is that which keeps us from flourishing. Sin is that which keeps us from flourishing and living up to our created potential. I'd never heard anyone talk about sin in that way. But it's that that which keeps us from flourishing. Far from the caricatures of being glum and life-denying, it means Christianity is the true humanism. Sometimes you'll hear your professors maybe contrast Christianity and humanism or even your pastors as if they are different things. No, Christianity is the true humanism. It says we are royal masterpieces, yet we are marred. The glorious image of God in us needs to be restored. The image of God in you needs to be restored. So what were you created to be? The image of God, and yet something is wrong. We are marred masterpieces. So many of us despise ourselves and think, and and Roger says, think of ourselves as unworthy and unlovable. We are marred masterpieces. The image of God in you needs to be restored. But what does the image of God look like? What would that look like for the image of God to be restored in you? Well, John says, no one has ever seen God. This is John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. Jesus has made God known. Colossians 1.15 adds, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus not only shows us who God is, Jesus shows us who we are. See, if Jesus is image of God, and you wonder, what does the image of God look like in a human being? Well, then you look at Jesus. Jesus was what humanity was created to be. Colossians 1.15 is telling us that in Jesus Christ, the nature and being of humanity as it was intended by our Creator has been fully revealed. Jesus is the perfect image of God, not defaced by sin. So here, here's another Paul say from Pascal. He said, therefore, not only do we only know God through Jesus Christ, but we only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. We only know, he's saying only, only when you look at Jesus do you know what a human being is actually supposed to look like. The theologian Karl Barth put it this way. He said, Jesus is the real man. I just love that. He has a lot of talk about what does a real man look like today? Well, look at Jesus. Jesus is the real man. You might also add he is, in his own way, shows us what true femininity looks like. What does a real man look like? Well, look at Jesus. What is a human being supposed to be? look at Jesus. The dependent, obedient, compassionate Jesus who always preferred his Father's will above his own, who prized humility, who loved others to the point of laying down his life. The Son of Man shows us what it means to be fully human. And if you're tracking with my line of thought here, he says, oh, oh, great. You're telling me just just be like Jesus. (laughs) Great. The distance we see from who we are and who God made us to be might serve only to make us more discouraged were it not for the gospel. And here is the gospel. To restore to us our created dignity, God became one of us. God became a man to restore what the first man lost In Christ, God has united His life to ours and made it possible for our lives to be made new. This is what union with Christ means. That Jesus is not just some impossible ideal on the horizon, neither is Jesus simply some algebraic arithmetic that you need to understand to get into heaven. Jesus is not removed from the realm of possibility or your everyday life. Christ has joined his life to yours. That's what it means to become a Christian. It it is a new reality has entered your life, that Christ, by his Spirit, has bound his life to yours. You are not your own means you are no longer on your own. Christ has joined his life to yours. You have given him your sin. He has given you his life. And just as the Pieta had to be restored by a master artist who took material from the existing statue and in painstaking expense restored the ruined masterpiece, so God, the original artist, used the material of his existing creation and in painstaking expense set out to restore his ruined masterpiece, which is you. In other words, Christ has now set you free to be your true self who you are by grace, not who you are by nature. The tarnished image of God in you, which has already been fully redeemed, can now be fully restored. And that is your destiny. The image of God restored in you. That is another way to define glorification. Glorification is where the marred image of God in you will be fully (gasps) restored. When your life will burst into blossom. We've done some pretty heavy lifting tonight to arrive at a most practical point. When it comes to this question, we all ask, where am I headed? What on earth am I here for? You no longer have to rack your brain or wait for an answer to fall from heaven. Jesus came from heaven that the image of God might be restored in you. Jesus came from heaven that you might become fully human on earth. So... In summary, what are you here for? To become a human being. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I thought I had that one licked out of the womb. Uh, what are you here for? You are here to become a human being. This is so powerful. This is so poignant. This is how you can answer uh, Professor Cronman or Professor Del Banco when they say, Uh, what are you here for? And you say, "I'm, I'm here to become a human being. And because of Jesus, we know what that looks like. The theme is actually captured in a single verse I read for you earlier, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed, listen for the language, to the image of his son. The image of God restored in you. That is your destiny. Now, what, is, what this doesn't mean, what this does not mean, this doesn't mean, that our, this doesn't mean when you become a Christian that, our, that your individuality is lost or that yourself is annihilated. I remember years ago a young woman in our church said, I, I feel like I'm a glass of water, that I'm supposed to be poured out so Jesus can fill me up. But sometimes I wonder what part of me is left. See, sometimes an effort to say what is true, I must become less so that he might become more, leads us to something false, that our individuality is given up when we give ourselves over to Christ. But yourself is not obliterated when you give yourself over more and more to Christ. Remember what Genesis 1 tells you. We were never created to be autonomous. We were created to live in communion with God and others. So Christ becomes one with us, but does not obliterate or annihilate us. God is the master artist who created each one of you distinctly. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship. You are God's workmanship. And the word is poema, where we get our word poem. That's been a theme of, of the night, that you are God's work of art. You are God's poem. There's no one else made like you. You are God's poema. Created in Christ Jesus, the verse continues, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only does God call you toward this glorious horizon of being conformed to the image of His Son, but He has in mind specific manifestations for you that your being conformed to the image of Christ will take. He has specific manifestations in mind for you. For my wife, it was spending three years in Sierra Leone and then being married to a pastor. But it, the God has in mind specific manifestations for you of what being conformed to His image will take. Not surprisingly, few have put this better than C.S. Lewis. He says, To become new means losing what we now call ourselves. Out of ourselves and into Christ we must go. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. He invented all the different men that you and I were intended to be. In that sense, Lewis says, our real selves are waiting for us in Christ. Our real selves are all waiting for us in Christ. It is no good trying to be myself without Him. Now, could anything stand in sharper contrast to our modern secular Western mindset? which says that you forge your identity on your own. You craft it by, by your own expressive, autonomous individuality. But Christ says, Only if you seek what you were made for, to love God above all else, will joy and fulfillment flood your life. But if we seek to please ourselves, we will find neither joy nor fulfillment if we settle for a far less glorious destiny, if we try to achieve our own significance, if we make our own goals our horizon, if we seek to fill ourselves by the way of personal achievement, then we will only become adrift, Lewis is saying, cut off from our created purpose. So where is your life headed when, when, when someone... What are you doing with your life? You now have an answer. I'm becoming a human being. I'm becoming a human being. What does that mean? Jesus is my horizon. And because he deigns to make us one with himself, this horizon is not only beautiful, this horizon is accessible. This horizon is accessible because Jesus has joined his life to yours. And he has said, I will get you all the way home. See, that's heaven. Heaven is one day you will see him face to face. And know him fully, you'll see a face that has a form you recognize. But not only will you see him, on that day, you will become like him. I wonder if you've ever really noticed that verse before I read earlier from 1 John 3 2. When we see him, we shall become like him. When we see him, we shall become like him. That is where you were headed. Conform to the glory of Christ, and any sacrifice is worth it if that is your horizon, if that is your if that is your end, to become like Him. And until that day, you say, What am I supposed to do until that day? Well, until that day the Bible says you are to put on the new self. Put on the new self, Colossians three ten, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Why does the writer say we're being renewed in knowledge? It is our progressive ability to recognize God's will and to walk in it. But not only is the image of God in us being renewed in knowledge, our entire self is being transformed. We wouldn't talk this way about ourselves unless the Bible compelled us to. But this is what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians three eighteen. It says, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are being transformed from one degree. It's talking about in this life. The glory that belongs to Christ, the brilliant, blazing image of God, that is becoming more and more your own. Do you see your glorious destiny? How could you ever again be bored? Do you see your glorious destiny? And Jesus knows this is hard for us to believe. That's why in his most famous prayer in John 17, Jesus prays precisely for this. In John 17, verse 22, he prays that we would know that we will share in his glory. He prays that for you. I pray that she will know that she will share in my glory. See, without ever becoming God, yet we are becoming more and more like the God-man. See, we often say, well, I'm only human I'm only human. Who ever dreamed that being a human being could, could be so glorious? Christianity is the true humanism. So that even a careful as theologian as John Calvin could summarize. He said, the purpose of the gospel, he says, the purpose of the gospel is to make us sooner or later like God. Indeed, it is, so to speak, a kind of deification. Close quote, John Calvin Now, before tonight, is that how you would have defined the purpose of the gospel? To become sooner or later like God. To participate in God's own life. It's not that you are becoming divine, but you are transformed and you are being welcomed in. What a destiny. We will be raised bodily, but we will be made perfectly blessed and we will dwell in heavenly glory in God's presence. Our destiny is not only to see Him and those we have loved and lost, but to become like Him and grow more and more one with Him. See, heaven is a world of industry and love. Heaven's not boring at all. It is a world of industry and love. But that's another sermon. Well, what am I supposed to do? Well, let, let, let me close tonight by just reflecting on some of the implications of this new destiny. All I wanted to do tonight was... Uh, my goal was very simple. I just wanted to blow your mind. For so you to say, wow, my purpose is to become a human being. And that is glorious. It is for the image of God in me to be restored. I now have a purpose for my life. I never need to wonder again, what am I here for? What, what am I doing? What's all this for? You now, you now have a biblically rooted, solid answer to that question. You are here for the image of God to be restored in you. You were here for the... And you now know what that looks like. It looks like Jesus. And Jesus not only tells you, He grabs hold of your life and He says, I'll I'll take you there. I'll take you there. Jesus will take you there. So let's reflect on some of the implications of this new destiny. I'm going to give you three. You can now boast in your weaknesses. If this is your destiny, if you know... If you know this is where I'm headed, and any sacrifice is worth it to get to that end, you can now boast in your weaknesses. Perhaps you know the verse, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. See, by nature, we resist pulling our weaknesses out into the light, much less boasting in them. They are rather more occasions for us to think, I can't believe I did that. Did I do that again? Am I really a Christian? I'm unfit to be a Christian if I did that. But one of the great discoveries of the Christian life is coming to see where we failed is an an occasion to praise Christ for His complete sufficiency. The Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones put it like this. He said, We must never look at any sin in our past life in any way except that which leads us to praise God and magnify his grace in Christ Jesus. He's saying every time you look at your past and you, and you feel so ashamed and you feel like you have these secrets about you that if anyone knew about you, and, and Lloyd-Jones is saying every time that thought comes into your mind, it should be an occasion to praise God and magnify his grace in Christ Jesus. That's boasting in your weakness. See, and when your horizon becomes being conformed to his image, you can boast in all these things that have reminded you how far you've fallen short. That's boasting in your weakness. See, the thing that you used to be ashamed of, you now boast in because you see it's moved you further along towards your goal. Now, I want to tell you, 10 years ago, had you asked me if I understood this verse, I might have said yes. I stand before you tonight, and here's what I think. I think I know what the Bible is saying here. And I think I've come to where I'm more comfortable naming my weaknesses and being vulnerable. But do I really boast in my weakness? And I want to tell you that is a tough question. That is a tough question. You know, I thought I did until I came face to face with some real weaknesses. And in my life, instead of boasting in them, I I tried to defend myself. I had forgotten what my true glory is and was. But if your horizon is to become a human being, to be conformed to the image of Jesus, then you can boast in your weakness. What was once an occasion for shame becomes an occasion for praise. That means when anyone criticizes you, that can become an occasion for praise. Praise God for His grace. So you can, if you know your destiny, you can boast in your weakness. Second, you, you can rejoice in your suffering. Even when you receive devastating or heartbreaking news, you can rejoice. That's a phrase from the Bible, rejoice in your suffering. Everything that happens to us Good and bad. And everything we strive for can and should now be interpreted through this new prism, the image of God being restored in you. The Apostle Paul says, We rejoice in our sufferings. Not that suffering is pleasurable, but every ounce of suffering becomes a stepping stone in this image of God being restored and perfected. Two weeks ago, I woke up with this text from one of my heroes who I'm sure has spoken to RUF Summer Conference before, a man by the name of Joe Novenson. And getting a text from Joe Novenson is sort of like getting a text from your grandparents. You're like, they text? Uh, And I woke up early one morning and there, there was this text on my phone. It says, quote, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Charles Spurgeon. I am praying that God will give you and me the grace to do some wave kissing today. Joe, kiss the wave because it is throwing you against the rock of ages, weaning you of self-reliance, of trying to be your own rock, of training you to see, no, God is your rock. That's, that's rejoicing in your sufferings, We asked last night, why do you care about glorification? It's going to happen someday and it'll be great, so why worry about it? Why worry about it? Because he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. You can get through anything in your life. You can get through anything. Any disappointment is cast in relief if you know where you're headed. You can kiss the wave that has thrown you against the rock of ages. You can rejoice in your suffering, not because it's something you're supposed to say, but because you see it as conforming you to that which is your glory. And third and lastly, you can discern what are your true wins and losses. You can now discern what are your true wins and what are your true losses. That's a phrase people use today. What is your win? What is your win? And I mentioned this last night. The Apostle Paul doesn't just say that all of his accomplishments are as nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, he says more than that. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. It's not just that those former wins don't compare. It's that he considers them losses because they were distracting him. They were keeping him from his true glory and highest good, knowing Christ. See, that is what makes for a fully human life. That is what makes a life flourish and blossom, knowing Christ when being conformed to him is your horizon, every accomplishment, when being conformed to him is your horizon, every accomplishment becomes a potential hurdle. You think, I got into med school becomes a potential hurdle. Something that might lead you away from that which is better, that you might know Christ and be conformed to his image. Don't you see, because of your glorification, every day now has purpose, because this purpose now stands over every day, that Christ might be fully formed in you. Galatians 4:19: that Christ might be fully formed in you. Your when becomes becoming human. Your win becomes becoming someone who loves. For this is what characterizes Jesus above all. Love was central to the life of Christ. That means love is at the heart of the image of God your win becomes someone who is learning how to love. So instead, of another way of saying, I'm becoming a human being, you can say, I'm becoming someone who is learning how to love. And your greatest failures are your failures to love. It means relationships become the most important thing in your life. Kobe Bryant, he of the L.A. Lakers, formally, said a few months ago, they said Kobe, you don't have many friends, and Kobe Bryant said, "Friends come and go, but banners hang forever." He was talking about the banners hanging in the LA Forum, and people loved it. Oh, Kobe! Isn't Kobe awesome? You know, he was on Sports Center. They said, "What a competitor! What a champion!" And I said, "What a sad man," because here is someone who has completely missed the horizon. So he thinks it's about a banner or a ring, and he prizes that over what God tells us is so much more important, relationships. So you might find yourself wishing for a far less, a glorious, less arduous destiny. You might find yourself wondering, is is any sacrifice worth it? And when we do, we can hear Christ whispering to us, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be full. These words over your life from Jesus are so that your joy may be full. So let me, let me pray for all of us tonight. Lord, I pray that when, we are, when we're afraid, when we're anxious, when we're heartbroken, when we don't know what to do, when we're bored, Lord, I pray that after tonight... That we can always say, Lord, my purpose is to become a human being. Lord, my purpose is for the image of God to be restored in me. Lord, I I am a masterpiece. I am a marred masterpiece. But you are painstakingly restoring me. And Lord, I pray that everyone in this room will know that they are God's work of art. That you have prepared good works for them to walk in. And I pray they will walk out of this room tonight knowing that they have a glorious destiny and that will propel them through every decision they make. I pray in Christ's name.